As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. On today's episode of Android's Dungeon, he's back, baby. He's back. Mr. Joel, 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 Joel Bryant. Back from overseas. By overseas, I mean far, far west, so he might as well be in another country. An interview with celebrated author John Kay. We talk board games, folks. You know what it's like. Stay tuned. Welcome to CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. I am Jack. And I'm Joel. Oh, he's back. It's nice to hear your voice, Joel. Beautiful to hear, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Joel, where have you been? I was on the West Coast, the best coast. Eh, That's like your opinion, man. Yeah. So I was in BC, I got a big family over there, and we just hung out in the mountains. (laughs) <laughs> Joel, do, does your family live in the mountains? Or? No, they're they're right there on the coast. I was but, getting a uh, Hills Have Eyes vibe for a second. <laughs> yeah. We did an hour up north to uh, Mount Seymour one day, and then we went on Thursday to Sunday to Golden Ears, which is still only about an hour 20, and did sort you of get, northeast. Did you get in uh, any gaming while you were there? Did get a lot of gaming in, actually. Yeah, we stopped by old Dave's Pop Culture in Ladner. What what store? Dave's Pop Culture. Where is it? In Ladner, B.C. So so Dave's Pop Culture in Ladner, B.C. Yep, that's my hometown. Population... 10 to 15,000. <laughs> oh, that's. I, I thought you were going to stop at 10 to 15. Like, oh, that's <laughs> 10 to 15 people. Uh, how was Dave? It's better than Sam's hometown. I think it's 600. Oh, my God. I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> I think that's that's rivaling Milverton for relevancy. Dave's is, is good. They're really into this uh, Raiders from the North, something like that. So tell us about Raiders. Before we go in I didn't further. I play it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. All right. I was going to say it's, it's a game that I've seen floating around a lot, and it looks interesting. It like strikes off all these boxes because it's Vikings. Yeah. Uh, it's different colored meeples and sort of like a bit, of, it, it does a bit of everything. And But the main thing that stopped me was that there's so many different versions of Raiders that yeah. really scared me. Because if you do a search on, let's say, Board Game Geek or something for uh, something of the North Sea, it's like, oh, are these expansions? Are these standalones? They all, they're <laughs> like, the summer tile placement, some are just worker placement. Like, yeah. Well, they really liked that. Uh, what was that other Viking game where the Jarl is dead and everybody wants to be a Jarl? Um, the Jarl's dead? Yeah, um, you know the one where you you get uh, warrior dice, and they all have their unique abilities. Oh, Champions of Midgard. Champions of Midgard, yeah. Yeah. So they really enjoyed that, and they said that this is basically a a retake on it. and uh, A more Euro-y take, too, because Champions of Midgard has tons of dice chucking for... um, Yeah, exactly. And this one, I think you 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 get your your fighters and your workers, and then you go overseas and you get even better ones. Mm-hmm. You have to give yours up and and replace them with upgrades. Upgrades. So Raiders of the North Sea is very popular in BC right now. Very yeah, hot. Yeah, right it now. looks really hot. But I didn't get an opportunity to play that. Uh, I I went in and I said, Dave, I need a game for my family. <laughs> I need a game that's going to be quick. Uh, very easy to pick up, you know, not very heavy, and I need it to be, you know, you can play it and still have like a baby on one arm and be watching your kids yell and, and running around. So, you know, he, so he was reaching for Mega Sieve and then he <laughs> yeah. takes his hand away. So he pulled it back a bit and he taught us Quicks. Okay, so describe Quicks. Quicks is uh, was cereal for kids. Men's a game of the year 2014. And it, for some reason, it won in Holland. It was, it was like a... The Holland um, Spiel. Yeah, it's something like Netherlands Spiel yeah. 2012 or something. And uh, yeah, it's a dice chucker point checker game. So you're... Joel, that sounds awful. How could it be any good? <laughs> well, you roll a bunch of dice. You roll four different colored dice and two white dice. And every time you roll the two white dice, anybody can jump on that and check it off. And basically, you've got... Uh, a personal board in front of you 
And the red and white colors go from 2 to 12. And the black and blue, or sorry, the blue and green colors go from 12 to 2. So if you've played the game or something like that, you know about... Uh, you have to go in sequence. You can never go back. Okay. So if you check off a 10 for yellow... That's it. You've only got 11 and 12 yeah. left, right? Uh, so basically, uh, you're trying to uh, get as many of these X's as you can as the game goes on. And the game ends when uh, somebody gets a 12 in a color oh. or a 2 in a color. Basically, you know, either you're going all the way to the bottom of the thing or all the way to the top. But you're only allowed to do that and close that die when you've got five in the middle. Huh. So let's say you've got 10, 8, 7, 6, 3 or something. Then you can now do the two. Okay. And that that die is removed and no one else can do that color anymore. Mm-hmm. Once two are gone, the game is over. All right. I see what you're saying now. So there's a weird sort of, um, I don't want to say push your luck, but you're keeping an eye on what your opponents are up to. And you're Absolutely. like, can I go another, a couple turns, get some more points? Or, oh, Joel just ended the game. I got greedy. And that's Yeah, like, exactly. Or if, if you were waiting to get that first number, you know, the 12 or the 2, to, mm-hmm. to start it off right at the beginning and you passed on too much, yeah, uh, you're out of luck. Because basically what happens is the person whose turn it is rolls and everybody can do the white result. So obviously 7 is very common. If you've played Catan or something with probabilities, you know that it's much more likely that you're going to see 6s, 7s, and 8s. But you you obviously don't want to start with a 7 because you're losing half of your possibilities. Right. Um, So people will say, ah, I won't do that one. Ah, I won't do that one. And they'll hold off until the good stuff comes around. But you don't know, is it going to be a short game or is it going to be a long game? Right. Because if if the right numbers are rolled... Obviously, tens, twelves, and twos are rare, um, but the game can just end in like three minutes, four minutes, four rounds. Somebody can close out a number in two turns because if they're jumping on everybody else's turns, all of a sudden they've got five in a color mm-hmm. and they hit the twelve. And then basically, the special thing about your turn is on your colors. So um you roll all the colored dice and the white dice you can add any one of the white die to any one of the colored die and add that on as well so it's like a wild almost yeah it's a bonus but the thing about your turn is you have to do at least one and you can get really screwed in that like say you get all sevens yeah and you don't want to lose well then you're allowed to take a penalty you can do five points off and you can do that four times. And if you do it four times, if anybody does it four times, the game's over again. <laughs> so they're minus 20 points. <laughs> and they say, you know what? <laughs> we're calling it. So did you ever find you were in a position where it's like, well, I don't want to add the white dice to this one or these ones. I'm going to do it to this. No, wait, I don't want to do it to that because I'm looking at my opponent and that'll help them a lot. So uh, fine, I'll eat the five and just move well, on. Well, everybody can do the white dice and it's just what you roll. So whether or not they're doing it or not, okay. it doesn't matter to you. It doesn't get eaten up or anything. Okay. So does it get an East uh, West Coast, excuse me, Android's Dungeon endorsement? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great game. We probably played, I don't know, 30, 40 games. And I, would, I like to experiment. So uh, one of the games I would do, every roll, I'm doing it. I don't care what the number is. I'm jumping on. I'm going to see how it goes. I did. Uh, I'm only going to do if I can move up one square, yeah. you know, so very cautious. I did it where I had a rule where I could only skip one. I had a rule where I could only skip two. Uh-huh. And, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. Learned a lot. Uh, what about you? What have you been playing lately? Not quicks. Not uh, quicks. It sounds really good. Before we move on, how much is it? If I went to a store and I wanted to pick up a copy. I paid $17 for it. A very day, inexpensive. Is, you know, he's a small shop, so he's got a markup. Well, but even that, like 17 bucks for, yep. for a game that you were saying was a hit with your family too, I guess? Yeah. One of the downsides is, is it uses paper sheets mm-hmm. as the, the things. Uh, so if you were to go through that, it probably only last 30, 40 games. Oh, no. Uh, but what I only we did, got 30 or 40 <laughs> games out of it. What we did was we laminated uh, eight sheets. Oh, wow. And then we just cut those up and we used uh, Sharpies with erasers. That's some serious modification, Joel. I'm really impressed with you for that. <laughs> yeah. Did you just go to Staples or something and do it? No, I guess uh, Chris had a laminator, my sister. That's pretty good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what have I been playing recently? 
It's, I talked about it a little bit on the show um, last week, but it's been brass. Uh, that was probably the most recent um, big game. But that said, Cal and I did pick up Charterstone um, mm. a little while ago. And I'm going to do a quick shill for a store in Cambridge. Um, I'm screwing up the name. Uh, it's something like uh, Toys and Toys Plus or Toys and Fun or something along those lines. It's in the Cambridge Mall. That's my that's my treasure hunt tip for you. <laughs> and it's this. So find it for you. You walk by the store and you think, oh, it's just another one of these sort of Playmobil Settlers of Catan stores. The guy inside. Whatever he's doing, he's stocking some games you're not going to find in your average toy store. Let's just say that. And I'll say this. He's also got great prices. He is frequently at least five bucks under everyone else, which I don't know how he does it. It's uh, Toy Tales Educational. What is that? Toy Tales. Toy Tales Educational in Cambridge. So I recommend giving a shot. Uh, anyway, we picked up Charterstone there, which is uh, the latest Stone Mayor game. Uh, to come out and uh, like full game and I was initially I played it once before I'm Luke I was lukewarm on the experience um, I think uh, Kayla really enjoyed it more than I did um, but I think it was also in part because Rado who you may, you're gonna hear dropped in the next uh, segment John K said that him and his wife played it um, and they loved it as a two-player game so we picked it up and it's this legacy uh, village building game so Kale and I set it up, got it going on s Monday, and uh, we played four rounds of it back to back to back to back because it's all set up and the game goes ridiculously quick once you've got four it all. Four rounds? Four rounds back How to back How long did to back. it take you? Fast. Huh. It, the game moves super quick with two players, and uh, it was fun. I don't think it's especially deep. Um, it takes a bunch. I'd say by the fourth round, you're starting to see some interesting choices appear. The first three rounds... Is fairly brain dead, I have to say, as far as what your options are, especially because as you go, you you begin to specialize a little bit, and the game rewards you for doing certain things. Mm -hmm. And there's you're, there's less jockeying for space or maybe reasons to visit your opponent's village. But in general, it, it's just been a, a very cute little experience in the game. So do you mean like resource-wise? Resource-wise, you still have to bounce all over the place for building things. But as it is, we're get, we're unlocking more and more things, and... Um, I think we're we're going to be looking for more reasons to actually get stuff from maybe Kale's village or my village or mm. something. Because once I've yell, you have all your buildings out, uh, you're going to have to start opening up more crates and it's going to become a little more difficult. You may want to specialize in different ways because you're going to start putting stickers over other stickers. Dun, dun, dun. But um, that's what we've been playing recently. It's it's a cute game. Nice. And I don't know if I can give it a, a, a hearty, a rousing endorsement, but my advice is if you, you like legacy games, you like fairly non-confrontational um, uh, worker placement games and appreciate the uh, the stone mare sort of style <laughs> then I, I recommend it and especially even get it on sale or something yeah so so now that you're you you've dug your heels into a uh, um, a legacy game with as a couple uh, do you think that it's even worthwhile for you to wait around for? Um, for you to wait around for uh, a group to get together? Do you think you should just say, you know, legacy games, either either a couple or if it's a next door neighbor or something like that, you know? <laughs> you know, it, the thing about it is, is that it's, it's anyone can drop in and play it. Yeah. Would it be as fun for them? Because our characters have been advanced and changed and have a bunch yeah. of things available. Maybe. It's not like Pandemic Legacy, I think, is a, would be a better example of something. Just drop in and play it. Yeah. But I, absolutely, if a certain couple or people decide <laughs> to pop by and play Charterstone, they'd be more than welcome to. Nice. Uh, but Legacy Games, and if you want to get a Legacy game done, yeah. I feel like you need to have somebody need a steady that is group. just always available. Yeah, and hopefully we can start grinding through Pandemic a bit more. Not grinding, it's not a pain. Yeah. It's just, it's, it'd be nice to get resolution. To get, get, get something going, yeah. And on that note. Season 2. Season 2? Oh, for Pandemic. <laughs> pandemic. Anyway, I'm Jack. <laughs> I'm Joel. Thanks for listening.
Welcome back to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario. I am joined on the phone by, I think I'll say friend of the show at this point, even though we, we have one previous uh, interview on the record, but I have John Kay, uh, editor for Quillette Magazine, and former editor of The Walrus, and columnist of National Post. How are you doing, John? Good. Of course I'm a friend of the show. I, uh... Very much support what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you very much. I don't like to throw a friend of the show around too much. We, no, no. We build no. enemies too quickly. And, uh, proudly so, proudly so. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start off the interview by asking what I'd like to ask all of our guests. What have you been playing recently? <sighs> wow. <laughs> Such an obvious question, and yet I was not prepared for it. <laughs> I uh, should have. Uh, so, <laughs> you should have warned me. Yeah. So lately, I, I have this friend... Uh, who he, he goes to Japan every six months or so for his work. Okay. Um, he's actually a guy you should have on your show. His name is John Chu. Okay. He runs Scrabble tournaments around the world, actually. He's a professional Scrabble tournament administrator. He, I think he's still one of the best Scrabble players in Canada. And he's also um, a Japanese, a Japanese-Canadian, and he goes back to Japan, which, as many of your listeners probably know, Japan has this thriving board game culture. And uh, every time he comes back from Japan, he has all these great games that, that no one else has played, uh, at least here in North America. And, and often, like maybe a year later, I'll see them on the market. So like one of them, a couple of years ago, he came back with this great board game called uh, Yokohama. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, yeah which, which has become a thing. And um, he brought it back. And often he'll bring it back like with, <laughs> with only the Japanese rules, and he's the only one to interpret the rules for it. Uh, and he came back with a great game called, actually by the same guy um, who, who did Yokohama. I think his name is Hayashi Hanasi. I'm probably getting that wrong. Anyway, he designed this great little game called Metro X. Oh. A very hard, it's hard to summarize, but it's one of, the, one, one of these games that is just as fun to play solitaire as it is to play with a group of five people. No, that's, um, it, that's rare for, sorry to interrupt you, that's rare for a lot of games because sometimes the solitaire version just feels like, at least for me, I'd rather be playing a computer game or something if I'm going to be playing a game by myself. Is, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's another game in my whole collection that I play solitaire. Uh, I think like Sagrada is a game, often it's sort of like mathematical puzzle games, like Sagrada is a game I think I, I could see playing solitaire. Mm -hmm. um, but this if you look on Board Game Geek, at first I thought it was a typo. It says number of players one to ninety nine, uh, but in fact you could probably you could play with a million. It's, it, there's a certain it's almost like bingo, but it's like um, bingo for like math nerds. <laughs> Basically, the board consists of a map of the Tokyo subway system, mm -hmm. and there's also an Osaka subway system variant. And John has actually made a variant with the Toronto streetcar system. And you have to, you draw cards with numbers on them, and you have to fill in the grids or, you know, fill in the blanks for all, and, and complete as many subway lines as, as you can. Mm -hmm. With, I mean, there's some rules thrown in in terms of, like, what happens when lines intersect. Mm -hmm. But I've kind of just told you, like, 75% of the rules. Like, it's really not a complicated game, and yet it's, it is maddeningly addictive. So I've played that. I've also uh, I got in the mail a couple weeks ago my Kickstarter, uh, Mercury Games, their jumbo shipment of Container. Have you played it yet? I did play it, and it was great. It was a really good game. I am, uh, I'm excited. I've got my copy sitting there, and I didn't realize it was three-player minimum, so now I have to sort of... Do you ever find when you, you're hosting these games, you have this... You feel a sense of burden of you really have to figure this game in and out before you introduce it to other people, lest it uh, just collapse. You never get a chance to play it again with a group. Absolutely. So yes, and and uh, I can see why it's three minimum because there's an auction component and mm -hmm. a fun auction component. Uh, I would say four. I mean, three theoretically you could play. In reality, you're probably going to want to play with four. Mm -hmm. Board game geek. Uh, sorry, this Kickstarter version is fantastic because. It's, it's this game that makes you feel like you're six years old because, like, <laughs> you have a ship yeah. and then you have, like, blocks on your ship and the blocks <laughs> represent cargo. Yeah. And you're like, I have purple cargo. Like, it's like, choo -choo, like, and you're going through the water. Like, it's. <laughs> Did you it, make the choo choo noise? I, yeah, and it, which is totally inappropriate because it's a boat. Boats well, we, you know, maybe it's a steam engine <laughs> boat. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's a water boat. It's, it's a great <laughs> game. Um, it's very. Um, there's a certain sort of like grim 
financial monopoly-like thing. I mean, it's all about money. It's all yeah, about making yeah. money. Uh, one interesting component, I will say, because, yeah, yeah, look, in summarize, people who haven't seen it or played it, mm-hmm. you're, you're producing goods, and then you're transporting goods to this island in the middle of the ocean, and then once they're there, you have an auction, and you, you take in all the money from the highest bidder, which is why it doesn't make sense to play with two players. You mm-hmm. would need at least probably four. And then there's this component of the auction where you can say, you know what, the bid wasn't high enough, so I'm going to buy it myself. Mm-hmm. However, if enough people do that, the structure of the game is such that money starts to leave the system and the economy crashes because there's just not enough money in the system. Mm-hmm. So it, it has these, these weird little quirks, enough of them so that it doesn't just feel like you're playing another money-based trade and profit game. So that's a lot of fun. I've been playing that. Uh, what else have I been playing? Um, God, I played a brain-burning game called Millennium Blades. Have you heard of Millennium Blades? It's funny you mention it. I've got it sitting on the shelf, and again, it's one of these things that I, I've heard legendary stories about it. And uh, Are you familiar with Rado? Rado uh, runs through his videos on YouTube? No, no. Uh, you know, I've probably seen them without knowing who he was because I, I watch a bunch of those videos. Yeah, he's, he's often described as kind of this chipmunk-esque character because he just speaks so quickly, but he, he knows his stuff. He's a software programmer uh, in nature, but... Uh, uh, he recommended Millennium Blades as this a fantastic sort of abstracted form of a, a basically a trading card game, except it's the the meta game. You're basically selling and buying these cards en masse, and it just looks so daunting. I haven't had a chance to get it out yet. But what are your thoughts? So it's completely daunting, and it's a so it's kind of like Salman Rushdie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What? So no, no, bear with me. Yeah, bear yeah, with yeah. me. Bear with me. I'm really happy. I read Midnight's Children okay. by Salman Rushdie, yeah. but I would never read it again, and I, I and I didn't particularly enjoy it. Like as I was reading it, I was like, "This is a brilliant book. This yeah. guy is a brilliant writer." But like, it just it, it was it was very challenging for me. Uh, I don't I'm not a big fiction reader, right. but like when it was done, I was like, "That was brilliant. No one else in the world could have written that book, and I'm glad I read it." Millennium Blaze is kind of the same thing, mm-hmm. where. The idea for this game is so crazy that it's incredible that it, it was pulled off. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's like one of these half dozen or so popular crazy magic style card games where it's like, oh, look, I have a third level druid. Oh, you have a fourth level robot priest. <laughs> they fight. Oh, I have the magic hammer. Oh, but I have the magic shield, which mm-hmm. deflects your hammer. And, and you, you, you have a, a collection of cards and you travel around the world playing in these tournaments and spend thousands of dollars and lose all your friends. <laughs> and like, there's like a half dozen like games like this. And Millennium Blades, and you use the term sort of meta, which is, is what it is. Millennium Blades allows you <laughs> to simulate the act of being a player who plays one of those games without actually wasting all your money and traveling around the world and losing all your friends. So... In Millennium Blades, you play the role of this other human who is obsessed with a game within a game that is also confusingly called Millennium Blades. <laughs> and there are three rounds within the game of actual Millennium Blades mm-hmm. where you have these cards and you're playing. And during those three mini rounds, the game is like no different than playing you know, any other sort of card-based game. There's sort of like a combat theme and you gain points. But then in between those rounds, you step into the role of the meta player, of Mm -hmm. like this human who, and then you become a collector and you trade cards with other players around the table who themselves are playing the role of other Millennium Blades players. Mm -hmm. And there's this this somewhat pathetic feature where your character can become friends with their character (laughs) and then you get certain bonuses, like, which was so pathetic. It's like, oh, look. You made a friend. He gave you a card. Isn't that nice? Now you give him a card. <laughs> and, um, and there's that. And then you can collect them. Like You can simulate the, 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 the idea of sort of collecting a whole set of cards and then selling them. Yeah. And then you get cash. And then you get that cash and you go back to the Millennium Blade store and you buy like premium cards. Um, and then by the, end of the, by the time you get to the third round, you've got like 40 or 50 cards sort of between your hand and your collection. Uh, and, and this is actually very true to a lot of these things where a part of the skill is just managing this incredible number of cards you had. The game comes with, I don't know, six, 700 cards. And the big um, bottleneck for a lot of people is like it takes maybe like an hour t- just to prepare for a game because mm-hmm. there's 
a dozen different decks you have to prepare. And there's one like super deck that has hundreds of cards and it's like, well, you need 17 green cards and 14 silver cards, but make sure there's no purple cards. And, and, and so, and actually, and once you create that deck, the game designers say you should keep that deck around for six or seven games. Because, six or seven. Building that, well, the idea is you sort of building that deck is, is a lot of work investment. Mm-hmm. And then once you get bored of playing that deck, um, you can you can shift the deck around. But mm-hmm. um, if you play the game, it's probably a two or three hour play. There's a lot of math. Uh, which I, I like math-based games. It's, it's fun, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it's an optimization game where when you're playing the minigame, it's like, well, I could play this card and get 30 points now, or mm-hmm. I can play that card and get four points for the next seven turns. But on the other hand, so it's, um, it's a brain burner, and it's fun. I'm not sure I would play it again, but playing it was a really interesting, mind-blowing experience. I understand your uh, Midnight's Children analogy now, but uh, when you mentioned yeah. brain burners and mathy games, and... Something's been brought up before, and usually it's level against a game like Power Grid, for example. Have you played that one? Yeah, so I love Power Grid, but it, it, it answers to the description of a brain burner, especially like a lot of Euro games, it slows right down on the, on the last turn or two mm-hmm. where people are trying to maximize their VP. And, and uh, I would say Power Grid has an additional complication in that you're not just maximizing the number of points and money you're going to get you're also trying to figure out when the game's over, right? Because mm. if I remember correctly, that game ends when the 17th city gets built or powered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and the other thing about that game is it's, it's often the person who's in last place who ends up winning, right? Because when you're last, you're the one who gets first choice on buying uh, fuel. You're the one, like, this, the game is heavily skewed toward allowing people who are in last to catch up by giving them all kinds of advantages in terms of priority buys on on fuel and stuff and this is a problem with a lot of euro games where it's fun and quick in the first 90 percent but it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a basketball game you know like in a basketball game (laughs) like all their timeouts in the last four seconds yeah yeah, yeah. so the last four seconds of basketball game takes 20 minutes to watch especially with my group of friends um it's not so much about winning but they hate leaving points on the table Uh. so You'll, you'll see them, they'll be like, they'll, they'll spend 10 minutes figuring out how can I get the most points out of this last turn. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a problem Euro game designers have a lot of trouble getting around. Um, and, and part of the way you get around it is sometimes you have like just things you don't know. So you kind of have to go on gut instinct because a person will have like a hidden card. Or mm-hmm. there'll, there'll be hidden information that makes it impossible to, to figure out exactly how, how much income you're going to get or whatever but but in in power grid there's no hidden information power grid is that because of this power grid is, is a curiously long game you look at it and you figure oh this will be over 90 minutes but Mm-mm. when i play power grid it always takes it always takes uh, three hours well you talk about hidden information and for a lot of people i guess depending on what uh, where you fall and uh, ultimately it's about how good the game is at the end of the day but hidden information would be a giant turnoff for a lot of people in the board game world, I know for a fact that uh, I can think of a couple of people in the forum I frequent that if there's hidden information, it, it drives them crazy because we're coming from the world of, let's say, 18xx's or maybe right. certain games where yep. it's just, it's all obvious. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I, I do see that you, wanna, you don't want to be ambushed. By, by information that you couldn't have predicted. On the other hand, though, there are ways of introducing it in a way that the information is not secret by the end of the game. And uh, the example I would give is a game that I, I mentioned in passing, uh, Sagrada. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you had a chance to play it. It's um, a stained glass theme. It, it was really big last year, might have come out the year before, where you have to take colored dice and arrange them depending on the numbers on the dice in a pattern that resembles stained glass. And there's five different colors of, of, of dice. You end up, at the beginning of the game, you're rolling like 40 dice, and people are picking dice mm-hmm. um, to make patterns. But everyone has a secret color. So my secret color uh. could be blue, yours could be green. And according to which secret color you have, you can actually get points just for having that color dice in your uh, tableau. Mm-hmm. And no, other, no one else gets that points for that color. But by about halfway through the game... Um, you can guess what the other person's color is because you see, oh, he has a choice between the, these three colors and he picked that one. Mm-hmm. And just by a process of deduction, so yes, it's hidden at the beginning, but uh, by the end, you don't know. And, but, and some games, just 
rely on secret information. Like if you play Twilight Imperium, mm-hmm. uh, and Twilight Imperium, I don't know if you've ever played it. I don't recommend it because it's too long. Oh, heresy uh, on Android's dungeon. <laughs> you know what? Twilight. Let's talk about Twilight Imperium. I have a serious problem with that game. But as you know, there's a public objective, which everyone yeah. can see, and a private objective. Wait, but sorry, before you go on, have, have you played the fourth edition, or are you still in the third? I would have to go check my collection. I bought it used because uh, there was a guy on my forum who... who he was moving, and as as you know, it takes up the space of like four regular games. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it, it, I doubt it was the most recent edition because okay. his was pretty well worn. Um, it's yeah, and 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 that game, you can never guess what the what the the private what the private winning condition is. But uh, if I remember correctly, it gives you two victory points. That's a game where you win with ten victory points, so it's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And usually, you can't guess what it is. That's a game that, I mean, that, to me, that's one of a number of problems with that game. Like, Twilight <laughs> Imperium is just, uh, I mean, on top of the fact that you're basically a game of, like, putting a fistful of plastic on a giant hexagon every turn. Well, you talk about uh, taking oh. forever to set things up. Uh, Twilight Imperium, I think, last time I, I've, I just, we got to try it the fourth edition uh, sort of recently. And uh, I think I was still setting up about two hours <laughs> before uh, people showed up. Uh, and it's just a nightmare, but uh, the hidden information exactly what you're talking about. It's with Sagrada, you can at least uh, I don't know if it deduce what people are yeah. up to. Whereas Twilight yeah. Pyramid, I think unless you played the game 20 times and you look at your opponent, it's like right. he's going pretty hard on this base building stuff. Like maybe he wants to have these ships in these sectors, but we're getting off track here. But anyway, and, and there are some games that you really have to play a lot of times to to figure out what people are doing. Another example there is the Ticket to Ride games where. Uh, there are mm-hmm. people who, who've only, yeah, maybe they've played it 15 or 20 times. You get to know what all the routes are. Mm-hmm. So you just, you look at where a person is going and you'll say, okay, that person is definitely going from like, whatever, whatever it is, Seattle to New York or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so I know that if I build this, this segment, I'm going to screw them up. Because um, there's only 30 or 40 cards in the deck. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's something that can be a turnoff for people because they're like, wait a sec. So you're saying I have to play this game two dozen times before I, I have the information I need, or at least I've internalized the mm-hmm. information I need in order to be competitive with other players. That so I so far I haven't seen people stop playing Ticket to Ride for that reason, but I will admit that it's it does annoy me when I'm playing the game and a guy looks at me and says, "Oh, you're going San Francisco to Miami," and I am going <laughs> San Francisco to Miami, and I'm yeah. like, you know, screw you for knowing that, yeah. like. <laughs> Because uh, I, I don't know where they're going, but they know where I'm going. Well, it's kind of it gets into the question of what sort of games are out there that a newbie has just as much of a chance beating a seasoned veteran. And if that's true, is that still a good game? I think of something like no. uh, I my think no. yeah, because my co-host uh, I just introduced in the Twilight Struggle the other day, and that's a game I will not pretend to be good at, or let alone know very well. But it's a game that a, a veteran will crush absolutely crush yeah. somebody who has no idea what they're doing within like a couple of rounds the game's decided yeah um i actually a couple of weeks ago downloaded uh that game on my phone mm-hmm. and i've sort of given up on it because there's just too much information for the game to be fun on a phone like it's just, you know you're looking at cards and it's kind of crowded mm-hmm. you're right i mean it's it is a game where you get crushed i mean most military simulation games it's it's hard to randomize it in a way that that a noob has, has a chance like if you play i mean you know the far end of the spectrum you know, squad leader which mm-hmm. is my favorite game like it takes years before you're competitive with good players <laughs> uh, and of course games like with no luck like chess and go are mm-hmm. just completely you're going to get dominated by a good player um but sagrada is actually a game with where a beginner player actually does have a chance Actually, if you're looking at gateway games, um, have you played Century Road? Um, this uh, Spice Road. What's Spice Road. Century Spice Road. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, exactly. No, I haven't. I, I was tempted to because people are saying, "Oh, it's like Splendor but better." But at the same time, I heard it was Splendor except longer and somehow drier. And at the same time, I was just scared by Those it. Those are all true. Mm-hmm. Those are all true. Uh, since. I bought that game. I have not played, played Splendor. So it is a Splendor killer. Mm. Um, it's Spl- <laughs> Splendor was an interesting game because you could have five points and then the next turn have 15 points because, uh-huh. you know, you, got, you played a seven-point card and then you got the Noble and then yeah. you, t- oh, you won and you're like, hey, how the hell did that happen? Yeah. Whereas uh, Century, Century Road, is that what it's called? Century Spice Road. Century. 
That's right. It's, it's a little bit more methodical, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's fun. And I think once you know the rules, you can play in about 40 minutes. Mm. And that game that was went through sort of a manic phase in my game group where we just we played it a lot. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's a good game. So what, what drew uh, your group to it? Because from the sound of it, well, I'm, I'm imagining and trying to uh, remember what we talked about last time. But from the sound of it, your group... Uh, seems to lean towards the medium to heavy games, and for something yeah. like that's a splendor replacer or filler, it se- is it just kind of a warm up game, or did it just scratch an itch that you find that some of these heavier games you're playing, you're like, it's a good game, but it's it's not maybe the the speed of it is uh, the main the biggest factor. That's a really good question. Um, I think in the case of of, of Century Road. Um, it was basically a random encounter with a guy at Snakes and Lattes who showed it to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like, I think we were waiting for somebody and he showed it to me and I was like, this is cool. And I bought it. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've learned a lot since the last time we talked, which is a year ago, which is that in a group of gamers, it's good to have people who get their own game ideas from different sources. Because if you've got like five or six guys who play war games, and you know, not to generalize, but it's usually yeah, war yeah. games, and it's usually guys. Um, and they're all like reading the same blogs, and mm-hmm. they all go to the same tournaments, and you know they're all like in the same demographic. Chances are they're all going to be exposed to the same new games, and you're probably going to, you know, for the life of that group, you're probably going to end up playing the same games. My group of guys that I've got in Toronto now, it's sort of interesting because I already mentioned this guy, John Chu, who goes to Japan. Mm-hmm. And Japan produces like these really interesting, quirky, outside-the-box games. Mm-hmm. And, 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 he'll, and he'll go to Japan and he'll come back and just blow our minds with these games he brings back. And then we have, excuse me, we have one guy who he's part of another game group. And that game group prefers lighter, certainly not party games, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, kind of like beer and pretzel games. Yeah, yeah. And, and he'll come and say, hey, guys, give this a chance. I know, like, you know, it's not, not as heavy as some of the games we play. And we're like, yeah, it's a good game. Uh, and then, you know, there's me where I'll go to a squad leader tournament because squad leader is, is my, my jam. Mm-hmm. And as a squad leader, you know, there'll be some guy showing me, like, another super heavy, intense <laughs> World War II themed game. And I come back and I'm like, guys, check this out. It's like eight, 18 double X meets squad leader, uh, you know, meets meet Pax Renaissance. It takes 17 hours to play. And, and, so, and, and we all have, um, and so we all have different sources of games mm-hmm. and we all surprise each other. Uh, it's also the case that, like, sometimes we'll have two games going. Like, you know, we'll have, like, a four-player game of, 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 of some medium-length game, mm-hmm. and then an- another <clears throat> group will be playing some longer game. And if you have multiple games going, there's always going to be these interregnums where, you know, you're waiting 45 minutes or an hour for the other group to finish mm-hmm. so you can get started on, like, you know, Rising Sun or whatever. <laughs> and you, you do need games to play. And, and during those periods... Mm-hmm. So, like, um, uh, that's when people get break out the Splendor. You know, that's where people will break, break out Timelines. That's when people will break out uh, uh, Century Road or Sagrada. Um, and, and, and often, it's interesting, because at the end of the night, sometimes, even though those games are supposed to be just kind of like uh, sort of little diversions that you do in between the big games, there are times when it's like that's the most fun game of the evening, and then that game gets brought out as the main course the next time around. Uh, so, so I think that's that's the way these games of different complexity get introduced to our our, our circle. It's, it's funny you mention that because there was uh, there's a place uh, near Guelph called Breslau, and they have a, uh, a I think it's a bi-monthly meetup. And it's uh, pretty small potatoes by, I think, maybe, uh, let's say, big city Toronto standards. But uh, <laughs> you show up and you just pay your, your little fee. And I think it, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it goes as donated to something or not, whatnot. But you bring your game. If you look for people who want to play it, maybe, or you just play, uh, play it yourself with your friends. But in between, I remember, I've only been there once and I had a really good time. But in between the games we were playing, or maybe in between rounds, I remember walking around looking at what people were playing. And that's when I first saw my first... Um, uh, GMT war game because people were playing um, Fire in the Lake, the uh, coin game set in Vietnam, and I was just looking yeah, at I it, that. and I, I my eyes exploded because I, I just couldn't. It, a it looked gorgeous, and B it it looked really incredible, and I really wanted to play it. And I haven't played it yet, but uh, um, th- there's something about these meetups which brings me to um, my question. You went to we were talking a little while ago, and unfortunately it didn't happen. But the you were at a convention a little while ago. I think I want to say Breakout Con or. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay, so what was? Uh, can you describe what it was like uh, at this convention and uh, what the the theme of it was? Yeah, so um, there's something in Toronto called um, uh, TABS. I think it stands for Toronto Area Board Game Society. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they meet up once a once every quarter, so once every three months at a Canadian Legion Hall. Uh, which is actually reasonably close to where I live. It's on Danforth Avenue, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's awesome. Um, and but then once a year, they also have this um, this much larger convention, which is uh, they call it Breakout Con. I think it's organized under the same auspices, but it's much bigger. And they usually do it at, at a hotel. Uh, and um, uh, I went to this last one. It's a three-day thing, and it happened to coincide with uh, uh, my, the rest of my family going out of town on vacation. And you know, obviously, I, I missed them greatly. But, <laughs> you know, since, since I did have to find some way to, to pass the time, mm-hmm. I uh, said, oh, why don't I spend uh, 16 hours a day for three straight days at this uh, breakout 2018 board game thing? And I don't think there is any better way in the entire world to play games with other people who are into games. Like, it's not one of these situations where some people are into it, some people aren't into it. Like, mm-hmm. if you're there, you're into games. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it's, it's not unheard of that you're, you start playing a game and people, like, within five minutes, people are like, eh, you know, oh, it's, it's a three-hour game, you know what, I have to leave into it. So sometimes you will lose players, but you tend to lose them, like, right at the at get, get-go, which mm-hmm. is an appropriate time to leave. They don't just leave in the middle of the game. Right. But, that's, but what's also great is there'll, there'll be a sign-up one sign will say looking for new players so you know you never feel awkward they're actually looking for new players yeah and also they'll have a sign up saying we need someone to teach this game oh and if it and and so people would jump in and teach it but what i found is it was often the case that i'd jump into a game and say i have no idea how to play this game and there will be one person there who not only will teach the game but teach it cheerfully so there was a You've probably played it. It's a very popular game now. Uh, it's uh, Rising Sun. Uh, I've got it. I haven't played it yet, though. A great game. Really great game. And and a guy there taught it, and it was so much fun that we all looked at each other and said, hey, let's play that again. And so, we, play, we, so we played a three-hour game, but then we all knew how to play, and then we played another two-hour game. Mm-hmm. And um, I also played uh, Photosynthesis for the first time, which is not a new game, but which I enjoyed. I played uh, Orleans, or Orleans, depending mm-hmm. on how you want to... That was, that was awesome, uh, and that's a class. That's a classic Euro game which I'd never played. Uh, I played Indian Summer, which is I'm sure your listeners have played uh, Patchwork by UA Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another game, kind of in the same family by that guy. Uh, Rising Sun, and some, what's interesting is also you you walk around, and the, one of the reasons I picked Rising Sun, first of all, it's just an incredibly cool looking game. The minis. The other reason is. Sorry, the minis are. I remember the, that's one of. Come on, the uh, publishers yeah. uh, claims the fame is they, they go crazy with their minis and it's a Kickstarter the minis too. Are so. cool. Yeah, and but I should caution the Kickstarter version was different from the non-Kickstarter. So the Kickstarter version, like a lot of stuff, was in metal and it was it was like the some of the tiles were kind of like this really nice heavy plastic and and if, if you didn't buy it on Kickstarter, some of the components aren't as good. But it's still a beautiful game. Mm-hmm. But then you look around if you if you look around this huge hall and out of a hundred tables you know, 15 or 10 are playing the same game, yeah. you're kind of like, you know what, I, I think I want to play that game just because it, it looks really popular and I know people are going to be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also end up playing like second tier games that you would just never play mm. otherwise. Like, so there's this game called Vast, the Crystal Caverns. Yeah. Uh, this sort of, it's a dungeon crawler game, sort of an interesting premise, like one person plays a dungeon, one person plays a dragon, one person plays the explorer, one... It's kind of interesting. Like again, I, I'm not sure I would play it again, but I really enjoyed the group of people I, I, I played with. Like one, one guy was super into it, and it was mm. in, in a fun way, so that was good. Uh, and again, like in three day, oh, Sagrada. There was some guy I just sat down with. He taught me Sagrada in mm-hmm. a few minutes. A game I I bought on the spot, and uh, and then uh, you know I was like I was getting ready to leave at 10 a 10 p.m. and there was this group. They were like, "Hey, we need a a fourth for Orleans or Orleans." <laughs> yeah. And I was, okay, sure. And then. <laughs> end up staying until like two in the morning or whatever <laughs> holy smokes um, it was crazy like i've never had such an intense board game experience what an endorsement and, um, wow 
it was amazing. Uh, and uh, what's great is like you don't if you want to play the same games you, you know and love, you can do that. But if you also say, as I did, I'm going to use this experience to learn and play absolutely new games with people who are experts and love teaching and are enthusiastic about the game, you can do that too. And uh, I probably I learned more new games in a, in a single long weekend than I usually would maybe in like a six-month period. It was, it was amazing. I know you're running uh, a little short on time here, but I need to ask you about the project you've got going right now, which is... Uh, I'm going to call it Project X, your book on board games. Uh, do you have a working yeah. title? Well, yeah. Uh, the, the working title was uh, We the Meeple. <laughs> uh, good, eh? Yeah, I mean, it's... the problem is, so, so the difference now between the last time I talked to you is we actually signed a publishing contract. Oh, so, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, so we're, that manuscript is due by the end of the year. I got, when you're... When you're writing a book about something you're passionate about, it, uh, it's, it's easy to do um, because you, you sort of have to like figure out, well, what don't I put into the book because you're, you're so eager to stick stuff in. Mm-hmm. It probably won't be We the Meeple. The We the Meeple is a clever title if you want to sell books at board gaming conventions. Mm-hmm. It's not that clever title if you're trying to attract people who aren't gamers because the average person doesn't know what a Meeple is, right? Mm-hmm. They might be able to identify what it looks like from, you know. Oh, it's that thing it from like... uh, that game that he plays. Yeah, my, my brother-in-law plays those games. Like, <laughs> he you know, smells it's, funny. It's, yeah. My sister is such an idiot. So, <laughs> it, yeah. So, if, you're, if, you're, if, if I want to sell at board game conventions, which I hope, you know, two, two years from now, I hope the, game, the book is being sold at board game conventions, mm-hmm. but uh, publishers don't want to um, publish niche books. And so, well, it's not, not mainstream publishers. So, mm-hmm. it'll probably have... Um, a title that's different, but I will tell you, it'll, it's going to, it's going to, each chapter is going to be a different essay, and every essay will be about a different board game, and it will be about some real life lesson, whether it's about human nature or economics, or or politics or history, that can be derived from the dynamics of that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it, you know, the chapter on Settlers of Catan is not going to be like. Here's the way to be awesome at Settlers of Catan. You know, if you want to learn how to be awesome at Settlers of Catan, there are more than enough people online who will tell you for free. You don't mm-hmm. have to buy a $15 book. But it'll be about Settlers of Catan, like what you can learn about human existence beyond board games from playing that particular game. And every chapter will be a, a different game. Um, there'll be, you know, some of them are obvious, like, Although I don't think the lessons will be obvious, They're, but you know, Monopoly, Settlers, in my case, Squad Leader. Uh, but there are some games that uh, that I think will surprise people. And I have a co-author. I c- I don't consider myself a board game expert. I consider myself I'm a writer who loves board games. Mm-hmm. Uh, my collaborator is a board game expert who loves writing. And um, he's I'm lucky because he's not, also happens to be an outstanding writer, and, and I hope he thinks that I have enough board game knowledge to, to help float the project. Uh, but we're having a great time with it, and we've had some great brainstorming sessions where we figured out, you know, we, we had to sort of narrow things down because you know, he plays, he literally plays hundreds of games. I play dozens of games. He plays hundreds of games. Wow. So there were a lot of candidate games. And I, if you're like me, you're probably often playing a game and the game will remind you, some of the decisions you have in the game will remind you of other games, but it also, mm. at least metaphorically, remind you of other situations in life where you have to make decisions. And the classic Euro game decision is spend or invest, right? Mm. Um, you know, do I take the 10 victory points now, or do I take the one victory point for turn per turn for the next however many turns there are, but I don't know how many turns there'll be. Mm. And this, you know, in its crude way, mimics decisions we make about investing money or investing in education. Uh, so it's, it's not unusual that you would play a game and say there are lessons in this game that apply to life in general. Uh, we're trying to, to, to collect those and, and produce a book out of it, and it's a very exciting project. Now, you mentioned before that you got to interview Phil Eklund as part of this book, I think. Um, yeah. who's a fairly fascinating fellow, at least from the outside. Obviously, I've had no contact with, not obviously, but definitely have not had contact with him. And you bring up politics, and uh, he's fairly well known for being a giant libertarian and even writing sort of like, uh, I don't want to say treatises or theses in the front of his book or in his manuals. But um, 
I was reading about a game he made called uh, Origins, and I think it's being repackaged as Bios Origins as part of his trilogy. But uh, what was interesting, and it struck me, is that in his sort of breakdown of what the game is about, he said it's a civilization game from the perspective of people as opposed to rulers. And that was his focus on it, which I thought was fascinating because it never occurred to me, or it never occurred to me before how all these games are always top-down versus in this case he was trying to frame it as the people making decisions and trying to f look at what the, the workers in this civilization would be doing as opposed to kings trading with each other or just buying technologies and whatnot. But um, what was your conversation like with him for the book? So talking to Phil Eklund was a huge thrill. Um, I actually wrote an article for Atlantic Magazine in the States about my interview with him uh, because he explained so much about a thesis that I was exploring. So the article is, uh, is called uh, The Invasion of the German Board Games, uh, and it was published in January by uh, Atlantic Magazine. So if you go to Atlantic.com and you just you know, put Jonathan Kane in the search engine, uh, the, it's called Invasion of the German Board Games, or I'd, you could put it on your, your yeah, social we'll, media. Yeah, we'll send feed, uh, some tweets out about it. Yeah. Uh, and... Wow, what an interview. So everything you just said is true, but I think there's a larger story here, which is that you know, Phil Eklund, I think he grew up, if I remember correctly, I think it was Tucson, and he became like an engineer, and he designed like avionics systems and missile systems. I, I want to say Raytheon, mm -hmm. like one of the major uh, defense contractors. And he loved board games. And uh, it was when he went to Germany that he really got his mind blown because... He was tired of the idea of what he called the Napoleonic game, mm -hmm. which is where you're you're the commander and you're moving little armies around the map, and those you know could be like regiments or battalions or in squad leader it's like you know individual tanks and or in rise and decline of the Third Reich it's you know mm -hmm. multiple divisions and but at the end of the day you're Napoleon you're moving armies around a map that's what you're doing, and when he went to Germany he found that people didn't like those games for a fairly obvious reason which is that um, you know, he, he went there a couple decades ago, but like, you know, within the living memory of a lot of people there, uh, war wasn't something they felt comfortable mm. making the subject of a game. It had, uh, you know, discredited their civilization. It had destroyed Europe. Uh, it wasn't a, wasn't a fun concept for a game. And out of that came the concept of a Euro game, which is it's about building things. Like Settlers of Catan, a lot of people listening to this are probably sick of Settlers of Catan. Settlers of Catan is about building. Mm -hmm. You're not, you know, once you put down a, a settlement or a road, um, you know, unless you're playing one of the variations, like, you know, it's, it's there. Like, yeah. you're, you're building, you're not, you're not making war, you're competing to develop, you're not competing to destroy. Hmm. And he found, Eklund found that that's, this was a common theme in a lot of these games. And uh, it's fascinating. And so I now play a lot of Phil Eklund games, so we haven't had a chance to talk about it. Uh, I play PAX Renaissance. Uh, I've heard I it's play, great, by the way. Is it? Have you done Porfiana or Pamir? Or uh, I think there's I even did a... Pamir. I, I don't recommend. I, I'm not crazy about Pamir. It tends yeah. to be over too quick. I just played actually Pamir a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Pax Renaissance is fantastic. And uh, by the way, I also play the BIOS. I played BIOS Megafauna. Oh, how was that? Played. It's good. Uh, but it BIOS Megafauna. <laughs> it takes three or four plays. Like the thing about. <laughs> So the thing about Bias Megafon is it's kind of like, oh, this is awesome. I developed this incredible life form mm -hmm. who like has this tentacles and, you know, he can be her, you know, he's, he's can live in this terrain and this terrain. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, an asteroid just landed and destroyed all your life forms. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> well, there's always these worms you have over here. Like, <laughs> and like, oh, that sucks. Can you imagine so, selling that to somebody too? Well, he didn't have to, right? Cause he's yeah. got his own Sierra Madre. Right? Yeah. Sierra Madre. Right. So, he could never sell this because it's so weird. Mm -hmm. So, but but now he has a cult following, right? Like he goes to game shows in Europe, and he's he's like a well, our, our equivalent of a rock star. But Pax Renaissance is is I would say a true implementation of the Eklundian ethos in board games because it's about controlling Europe. Uh, I guess I want to say like around the year fifteen hundred. Um, but you're not Napoleon; you're a banker, and the premise of the game is that. As a banker, you use financial means to to induce uh, religious officials or spies or kings and queens to make decisions that that are in your interest. Mm -hmm. And you're not Napoleon; you're someone in the in the back room. Mm -hmm. Now that said, going back to what you said earlier, 
the actual rules to these games, like Pax Renaissance, Pax Renaissance is actually a fairly complicated game. Pax Pamir, which is about Afghanistan during the Great Game, is not an incredibly complicated game. But the rule books tend to be long because he has a lot of editorializing about these historical periods yeah. contained within. And by the way, I'm not even sure all these games, like he's formally the creator. Um, like there are some games uh, in Sierra Madre, which uh, you can tell like he deeply influenced. But if you look at who actually created them, it, it might be one of his relatives or, or a friend. But but you play it and you're like, oh, yeah, this is an excellent game. Well, Cole, uh, Cole Worley, I forget how to pronounce it properly, uh, who's a very accomplished designer himself, uh, I think he's a frequent partner with Eklund, and if you check his board game geek, you can see where he goes through right. and he rates those 10 out of 10s on all those uh, Eklund uh, games. Yeah, well, he's, uh, once you've played an, an Eklund game, like, it's so unusual. Um, or there's a game called, like, An, an Infamous Traffic. Oh, which, yeah. Uh, right? Which is, I, I wasn't crazy, but it's a little weird for me, but um, you can <laughs> tell when you're playing it, like, again, like, it's, it's a, centered around the Opium Wars, and the way a normal human would, would do a board game about the Opium Wars is that you would say, okay, well, you'll be the British, and uh, you know, I'll be the native Chinese, and uh, we'll fight this war. But it's not, the way he does it is completely different. You're, there's merchants, and there's, uh, missionaries. there's missionaries. Yeah, the missionary is kind of creepy, but <laughs> so it, it's just, you're playing it, and it's like, wow, this is just, I would never think of designing a game in this way. Um, but going back to the way he writes the rules, like, uh, Pax Renaissance, like half of the rules consist of editorializing, which gets you into Phil Eklund's views of human nature and political organization and religion, which are, you know, I'm not even sure they're classically libertarian, but I would say he's, he's not neurotypical. I don't know if he, <laughs> he describes, no, I, oh, look, a lot of board gamers are not neurotypical. I'm not sure I would be considered neurotypical, but like, <laughs> He's one of these guys, if he thinks it, he says it, even if yeah, it's yeah. not, like, politically correct. And so, even when you play, so High Frontier, which is one of his games, it's about space travel. Have you and, played it? Um, yeah, I love it. Um, but 90% of High Frontier is about, like, pairing engines to spacecraft and colonizing planets and stuff like that, which mm -hmm. is super cool. It's not quite a 4X game, but it's, it's more interesting and complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But then, <laughs> yes, he has these rules where like you can you can actually create a space government and his section on the space government is like kind of creepy because <laughs> like <laughs> the space government has a tendency to like become this like nihilistic death cult <laughs> it's really weird but then on the other hand he also has this thing where there can be a robot uprising and the yeah. robots have this revolt and then the one player becomes what's known as the robot emancipator and you free the robots. Like he, it's like he interrupted a standard four X game to, to write like this creepy space opera <laughs> based on this. But I'll so, take that character any day over something oh, as bland as trading in the Mediterranean or go to like, have you played terraforming Mars? I have, I, it's in my collection. I played it once. It's a good game. It's a little abstract for my taste. Like, you know, it's, it's sort of hexagon placement and stuff, yeah. and it's, it's, it's fine. I, 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 there was a period, I guess, about 18 months ago where terraforming Mars was a huge deal. It, absurdly I never huge. Why. Yeah. Yeah, I never quite, like I said, okay, this is fun. Yeah. Never, but you're right. Terraforming Mars is like a standard Euro game. Like, it's fun, I, but it's, it's, it's not like you play it and, like, you think, oh, my God, this blows away everything I always thought I knew about Mars. Mm -hmm. Like, whereas when you play Pax Renaissance, it actually changes the way you think about European history uh, during that period. Like, it, it, and not necessarily because it's teaching you names and dates, mm -hmm. but it's teaching you about this complex interplay between the financial system, uh, the sweep of religious movements, and uh, the rise of Republican systems of government and monarchy. And that sounds like, oh my God, how can you combine all those things in a single game? Especially a game like Pax Renaissance, mm -hmm. which like, the size of the box is about a quarter the size of, of a standard game, but he does it. Because Eklund is a genius. And I was privileged to talk to him. And if anybody wants to read about that interview, uh, it's, it's in this Atlantic Magazine article, and it'll be uh, also in the, uh, the book that I write. On that note, we're going to end the interview. Thank you very much, John, for 
uh, coming in and uh, sitting down with us. I assume you're sitting. You might be standing, but I'm sitting, so I'm going to say that. You know what? I started getting up and pacing as soon as I started talking about Pax Renaissance. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I need to get it. It's, 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 uh, it, it's, it energizes you. Like my, my wife says, you know, how can you be energized about a game that requires you to sit down for four hours? And it's like... Honey, it's, that's, that's it, a short amount of time. <laughs> well, for his... Yeah. By the way, this is why I don't like Pax Premier because the last game it was over in 20 minutes. The Russians oh, took over man. Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's like, oh man, the Russians took over Afghanistan again. Uh, <laughs> Maybe yeah, it'll work I, this I, time. As you see, I, I get energetic. I get passionate about this subject, and uh, so it was a it was a, a treat to talk about someone else who's passionate about it too. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to reading your book when it's all done. And I encourage everyone to check them out. Uh, you can, I believe, your Twitter handle is just a very simple, clean at John K. And, uh, yeah. Although I caution, I, I don't usually tweet about board games because uh, you know it's a specialized audience. But uh, every once in a while, I do and if anyone's in Toronto and wants to play, uh, just tweet at me at uh, J O N K A Y and they can come join my board gaming group on Sunday nights. All right, and check them out on uh, the occasional articles on Quillette and uh, I guess the Atlantic. Read this excellent interview and story about uh, the invasion of the Germans. This time, don't be scared. They're the good Germans this time. <laughs> Not that kind of German. Not that kind. Thanks for helping us out, John. Take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye.